Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. 
total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. This tech enablement that's actually happening is making way more possible for anyone to build a company anywhere. And at the end of the day, that's what's so exciting. And I think we get really caught up in, you know, who's going to be building the next Uber or Google or Facebook. And the reality is, is that people can build great companies everywhere and they all don't have to... Who wants to run a billion, multi-billion dollar company? Do you know what a pain in the ass that would be? Like all of a sudden, technology is making it possible for you to build really great businesses that are great for your family, that are great for uh, the economy, that are great for your customers. Build great businesses. Um, that's more interesting. And technology makes that easier than ever. And that is truly going to be the agency that allows anyone anywhere um, to be able to rise up and pull themselves into another echelon where they actually control their destiny, where they're not worried about layoffs in their community or their town. Now technology makes it possible to do that and do that anywhere. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Chris and Ann, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank Thanks you. so much for having us on. Absolutely. So it is my pleasure to have you here. I actually came across your story by way of, I, I believe, your publicist. And uh, it was interesting because, you know, when I go through who I'm going to say yes to and who I'm going to say no to, it's always one of those things where I can't boil it down to a formula. It's always, okay, does something about this story make me curious? And yours definitely did. Uh, so on that note, uh, I want to start by asking both of you, what is one of the most important things that each of you learned from one or both of your parents that ended up shaping who you are and what you've done with your life. Wow, that's a great starting point, and I like, I like, uh, I like working backwards uh, and 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 we're digging deep right on the first first question. Um, I would say that for me, one of the most important lessons in my life uh, comes from my father, and it's the lesson of perseverance. Um, the, there's so many ways in which this has applied to my career as an entrepreneur um, and probably uh, and probably many people on their entrepreneurial journey. Uh, but it's, it's just the fact of the matter is that there is no overnight success, uh, that anytime you, you start to hear about kind of overnight successes, um, it, it's taken a lot of digging and, and, and grinding to get there. And, you know, I think that, that, that definitely is sort of true for my, um, career path and where Ann and I are going right now that, um, it, it's been a grind. Uh, we're, we're growing every day, but, um, a big part of it is just the, the notion of perseverance. You've got to be in there taking swings at bat, you know, time after time after time. And, and, you know, that's the way you actually, you actually build a business and build a career. Why don't you just talk a little bit about 
why he yeah. said that about perseverance. Like, tell a story about your yeah. dad and how he was persevering. Give you that insight. Yeah. Um, so the and you kind of read my mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, the so so my dad um, worked in in Africa and relief work. He was in the Peace Corps. Um, he then went into NGO work and we grew up in, in Nairobi, Kenya. And so my dad, you know, spent his, his career, you know, helping people in, you know, extreme poverty, trying to lift themselves out of, of, of those conditions, you know, through access to education and healthcare and, and the various things. And so, um, I think that that is, you know, it was a, it was a, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to sort of put one foot in in front of the other and um, and 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 keep going even in you know the most extreme you know conditions and um, you know that that I think that sort of connects back to where where that where that came from from him. So I'll tell a little story about my mom and she'll be mad um, about it, but I think it actually has really characterized, I don't know if I've learned a lot from it, but it certainly has shaped how I've approached work, which was um, my mom used to say to me, and this was back in my 20s, and I was at Google, and I was trying all kinds of new things and felt like I was king of the world. And she would always sort of say, hey, you know, are you sure you didn't want to become an accountant? Or are you sure you don't want to get your MBA? And she kind of always said these things like maybe then you would have, you know, you'd have achieved something. Um, and in my mind, I was like, I'm achieving something without sort of these letters behind your name that really mean nothing. I don't want to be an accountant. That would be the most boring thing in the entire world. Um, and I would get so angry with her. Um, every time she would say it, it would literally be a fight that we would have uh, whenever I would be home where she would say, well, maybe, you know, you should have gotten that accounting degree. Um, and I think for her, what it was, was I realized now looking back, what she was trying to say was for her education was really important. And she came, grew up in a world where your choice was to become a teacher or a nurse. And I think in her mind, she was like, I, I want you to have all the possibilities in the world to do something. And so I think what's shaped that for me is (laughs) first of all, was this notion of needing to prove something that I didn't need to have um, my chartered accountant degree or my MBA to achieve something. But I think it's also been uh, a really good lesson to sort of understand where people's, how people's perspectives are going to be different than your own. Um, and so as we kind of go down this entrepreneurial mm-hmm. journey together, we get a lot of people sort of scratching their heads, like, why would you do that? Or what's going on with you? And I think being able to stand up and, and know what path you're on is really important. And so as much as, um, some of those early fights that we would have around whether or not I had achieved anything in my career. Um, but they really led me to was this kind of general understanding of that you have to run your own path. You have to be your first believer and you have to be the person um, who is confident about what that is and no one else can kind of design it for you. Yeah. Well, I think it's hilarious that, you know, you, your mom would say, don't you want to achieve something and you're working at Google? Yeah, that seems so uh, <laughs> ironic to me. Yeah, but you weren't well, working at Google as an accountant, so what were you really doing? <laughs> I know, I know. Well, actually, it was really funny. Was she w- She stopped saying it as much when I started working at Google, and 
I had had a really cool job before that that was a big job and and definitely bigger than my years um, and my experience warranted. So I was definitely faking it um, till I made it. And so I would get really upset then because I'd be like, do you realize like how much I'm doing here? And when I went to Google, she sort of was like, well, at least you're at Google now. (laughs) (laughs) Chris, I mean, you guys both... uh have come from situations where clearly there is a sort of sense of, of overachiever mindset instilled in you. And I come from an Indian family, so I know how that goes. And yet at the same time, you had this drastic contrast where you got to see extreme poverty. So you've basically seen, you know, the extremes of, okay, here's Google where you see extreme wealth and here's, you know, poverty, uh, at an extreme level. And I wonder when you see those two contrasts, how that changes your worldview on money and status and wealth? You know, I, I think it actually, I'll let Anne respond from her perspective, but um, I actually think that it is very informative in terms of the way we approach things and obviously approach our business, but also approach life. Um, my narrative and sort of career arc has always been very grassroots up. I, I like, you know, start working as a community organizer and setting up meetups and just very, very grassroots and always have been sort of suspicious of, you know, government and, you know, university and sort of top-down methodologies. Uh, but part of our mindset and one of the reasons that we've worked, we work very well together is, you know, the limitation of that is Anne has always thought at scale. Um, so Anne's brought this sort of Silicon Valley mindset of, hey, you're doing what you're doing in New Orleans, so we can get into that in a little while on the grassroots. But you know, don't you want to think bigger? Don't you want to be bigger? Don't you want to have an impact at scale? Um, so I think I think that our approach um, certainly has has married sort of two different backgrounds and and worldviews um, to you know has married that in terms of us working together. Yeah. Um, I'll comment on my own, but just to add to that on Chris's side, which is one of the things I see from the outside is, is that when you get to grow up in an environment like that, where you're seeing, you know, you get the rarefied life of, of living uh, the expat life in Africa. And then you're also working in all of these, um, you're just seeing all of these different walks of life and, and experiences that you end up having a very, um, you can walk throughout the world uh, and fit in anywhere. And I think that's something that's really important and allows us um, and has taught me a lot about, you know, how do we engage in communities and not have bias and not be able to sort of be able to show up anywhere in the world um, and to be able to fit in. And I think that's a really important skill um, that I've learned from Chris actually over the last few years. But then on the other side is I think um, my journey through Google and, and you're right, it's, at the end of the day, I was there, especially in the heyday of elite hiring. So it, was, it definitely felt like, you know, Google was its own world. Um, and then as I've left, I kind of make this little joke that I keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And certainly now with the, the two of us running this company, um, and we're starting to sort of build our platform. The funny thing is, is that I realized that if you just think like, we did at Google where, you know, you kind of are this all encompassing being miss out on a lot of really amazing things. And so the work that we're doing now is realizing that there are great companies that can be started throughout the country, great companies that can be started throughout the world. And I think 
really approaching it at that grassroots level and marrying those two things is really important. And I think you miss out on a lot if you're just flying over uh, the country and you don't see actually what's actually happening on the ground and what's happening in um, the sort of spirit of entrepreneurship. And the other thing is, is that because of Chris's roots to Africa, we've spent some time there. And I think, you know, there's just this, you start to realize how much inherent bias there is around what's happening. If you show up in Lagos, Nigeria, um, you will never be anywhere where the energy is as great as it is there. It's almost frenetic. And so I think um, this sort of exploration of the world, I mean, yes, you've got Indian parents, you've probably spent some time in India, it's similar, but it's so overwhelming. um, And there's so much going on. And I think the world has so much to offer once we get out of our kind of ivory Mm -hmm. towers. Yeah. So, I mean, you brought up scale um, and you brought up, you know, the other parts of the country. We had Andrew Yang was a presidential candidate for 2020 here as a guest. And one of the things that struck me in that conversation and was he said is, is how colored our perception of the rest of the country is when you grow up on the coast or when you live on the coast. If you're in Silicon Valley, like you're seeing the world through this filter of privilege. And so I wonder, you know, in the wake of, of, you know, scandals like what's going on at Facebook, do you think that we reach a point of scale where this needs to be checked? Because, I, you know, my friend Paul Jarvis said something really interesting in his book where he said, you know, in any other part of life, you know, other than business, infinite growth is called cancer. <laughs> <laughs> And I just, you know, given the perspective that you guys have, I really wonder, you know, I mean, you've basically been part of, you know, for lack of a better word, the 800 pound gorilla. Yeah. I mean, I think I certainly, um, it's, it's a simpler life now. I will say that, which is, I think sometimes the things that you get exposed to when you're working on those companies and those platforms is you see the power of the platform and, and there is a lot of power in that platform. Um, to do any job in one of those companies, you're having a massive impact on the industry, on society, on on things that are actually changing. And and that is certainly exciting. I I can't speak to it now, but I can say that back in the day, one of the things I used to think about a lot was how proud I was around, you know, as much as the shifts of driving industry or driving change, um, there was a lot of focus on how to do good in the world and also how to protect privacy and think about your users first and uh, not take those steps. And I feel like that was a, there's a period of time and it was, you know, earlier in Google's um, trajectory and I can't speak to it now because I'm not there, but um, it, it was interesting. It was always this balance of like huge impact in the world and how can we do? And then that's, that's all for the greater good. And I think that, um, there, there is a time and there certainly was a time in Silicon Valley where a lot of the companies, um, a lot of the VCs, like they're having huge impacts, but they are very conscious of, you know, how they're, they're stepping foot in on the forest floor. I don't know as the proliferation of tech has continued and sort of all these growth companies, I'm not sure that that's entirely always the case. And I think that's the reality is, is that with great power attracts, um, different characters and different perspectives. And it's sometimes hard to stay on top of that um, more sort of good thoughts perspective. I've struggled with that. I'm struggling with my words there, but then at the end of the day, what we get to do now, and I say it's a little bit of a simpler time is we're sort of going into communities um, and starting to spark entrepreneurship. And those are, you know, they could be big ideas. They could be small ideas, but the thing that, that a lot of these places don't have is that massive platform. And so there is a little bit of 
and innocence in terms of like, we want to do this great thing. We want to build these great businesses. Um, but these companies aren't necessarily at that point where they're changing the industry yet. Um, and I kind of, I like that. I like that yeah. phase. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think, well, I, mean, I, I think, think that the reason a, I brought up the question, sorry, go ahead. It, it is a very interesting time. And, and Andrew Yang is actually a good friend and I'm, I'm so glad you had him on and it was just watching his, one of his rallies today. It's amazing the traction he's getting, but I think he's getting this traction because of the messages resonating. You know, I think that the, I like to think of myself as sort of, you know, being a Trojan horse in, in the Bay area or in Silicon Valley, but with a completely outsider perspective, um, because we are fortunate in that we get to travel around the rest of the country and we're, we're all over the place. We're in, in Louisville and Denver and Nashville and New Orleans and Memphis and in the last week, all, all in the last you know, couple <laughs> of weeks. Um, and you know, it, we're at a very challenging point, frankly, in this country in that, um, there, the, the gains of the last generation have absolutely accrued to the coasts. And, you know, knowledge workers and job creation, you know, is, is absolutely being concentrated. And you think about, you know, the, the Silicon Valley companies and the, you know, the, the tens of thousands of employees who just right now are all becoming millionaires through this, you know, last batch of IPOs coming out, which is going to, drive housing crisis, the housing crisis even worse in the Bay Area. And then on the flip side of it, you have these great American cities with cultural and historic assets. We were just in Louisville for the Kentucky Derby. And you, you drive around old Louisville, which is a great, beautiful neighborhood, tree-lined streets, sidewalks, sort of a classic, um, you know, city neighborhood planning with, with wonderful, you know, Three, four thousand foot Victorian homes built in the 1800s that you can pick up for $300,000, right? And it's just like, okay, how have we gotten to this point in the disparity in the country? Not even just like rich and poor disparity, but it's more like access to, you know, job creation, wealth creation, you know, opportunities versus, you know, the, the, in, in some ways, sort of the promise of the internet of being able to work anywhere and, and build businesses anywhere hasn't really happened. And I think that's, that's core to our mission is being able to, you know, redistribute that in, in the sense of access to opportunity and access mm -hmm. to, you know, wh whatever the barriers are to creating a great company in the Midwest or in the South or anywhere outside of New York and Silicon Valley, we need to break down those barriers. And that's kind of what, that's exactly what we're doing with Launchpad. And, and I think it's, you know, it's reached a, a little bit of a breaking point in this country in terms of, you know, where things are both in, in the Bay Area, you know, and in the rest of the country. It's unsustainable, you know, with the with the with that infinite growth, as you're referring to, too. Well, I think the, the reason the question also came up for me is after seeing the Chris Hughes piece in the New York Times and I even I saw an interview with him saying that, you know, the way the environment is set up currently, he said there have been no new social media companies actually launched since 2011. Not mm -hmm. that we need more social media in our lives, but uh, <clears throat> he said that the problem is with the, the current ecosystem. You had mentioned, you know, uh, opportunities for businesses to grow and thrive and then the real, you know, and the businesses that you guys have funded haven't had that chance. And I can't help but wonder how much of a role the current structure and sort of the monopolistic way in which the Valley is built is actually hindering innovation in the rest of the country. And you know, do you guys think that's true? Uh, like, and also, you know, what is it going to take large scale structural change from, you know, government on down to make this change? Um, 
you know, I think the reality is, is that the concentration of fin- funding has certainly impacted the creation of other startups in other places. But ultimately, if you think about the last sort of 10, 15 years, it, it's not the job of Silicon Valley to say, oh, I'm going to go find a bunch of different companies in other places. The thesis really is accurate, which was when we're building, we were building high tech companies with deep skills. There was a huge war for talent when it came to engineering uh, talent and capabilities and because uh, the technology challenges were really big. And so as a result, build your companies here, um, scale your companies here, fund companies here. And when I'm sitting on Sand Hill Row, I have a thousand companies that show up on my doorstep looking for funding that I can vet and test um, throughout with the matter of one phone call, right? So it it's makes it really easy for the funding to go to Silicon Valley startups. And I think that that, that, that needs to change. Um, but it's only going to change when we start to have really good companies coming out of other cities and, and other play people like us, like Rise of the Rest, who are going to be willing to take bets on other cities and put money in so that we can prove uh, that there are good companies. It's also changing because um, technology is making it possible for companies to start outside the valley that don't rely on, you know, the deepest, most extensive um, engineering resources. And at the end of the day, there are huge problems to be solved um, throughout the country that could be solved better, uh, closer to the problem. So oil and gas, climate change, all these issues actually have a real local factor and are probably not going to be the next multi-million dollar, billion dollar startups coming out of Silicon Valley because we're not on the front end, front lines uh, the way places like Louisiana or South Carolina are. And so we're going to want to see a little bit of that. But the other issue that's happening in these markets is, is that the fact that the local capital is such a challenge. So you have uh, local investors coming in, but they don't invest like Silicon Valley or New York investors. And funnily enough, um, it's, it's the coasts that do a better job of being founder friendly. It's the coasts that do a better job of standardizing deal terms. It's the coasts that do a better job of not taking their pound of flesh or driving down the valuation, which makes it easier for companies to be built there. And so what we need to see is we actually need to see the cities take a long-term view on generating interest in their markets on getting people and funding to come into those markets and building a trusted network. And that's what we're focused on. Um, and also making sure that the local capital gets invested in a way that is actually supportive to growing long-term companies and not for that angel investor to feel like they negotiated a great deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, one other thing, you know, we talked about, the fact- oh, I'm sorry, Chris, go ahead. I, I was just going to respond specifically to your question about Chris Hughes's article. If you if you want to you you want me to yeah. weigh in on that, please. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I thought yeah. I thought his you know sort of call for breaking up Facebook you know is appropriate in that we need to confront you know the reality and 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 how big and how how much of an influence in our democracy and in our daily lives Facebook is at this point. Um, I don't know if breaking up Facebook is the right approach, but I think consumers need to think very hard about their own privacy and their own ownership of their data. Um, you know, the monopolistic practice is, you know, how much Facebook owns your identity and owns your data. And I think that the the biggest challenge here is, you know, government regulation 
re regulation is really struggling to keep up with the pace of technology. So you saw in Zuckerberg's um, hearings on Congress, you know, most of our, our, our senators and congressmen really don't understand this stuff. And, and we've reached a point where the level of influence, both in the democratic sphere, uh, you know, with our democracy and other democracies around the world, as well as just in our, in our daily lives and in our own kind of mental health, um, Facebook and, and Instagram and whatever, you know, WhatsApp, whatever, what it owns, what it controls, you know, we, we've got a question, are these actually healthy for us or not? And I think there's a data, data, data regulation and privacy regulation element to it that regulators need to confront. And then frankly, I think that there is a screen time issue that we all need to confront. You know, it's, it's, you know, in my generation, when I, when we were growing up, you know, if you sat in front of the TV for six hours a day, your parents knew that was unhealthy, right? We're at a point where we all are doing that in front of our screens every day. And we've got to acknowledge that it's unhealthy and it's leading to, you know, sort of, you know, you know, anxiety, you know, social anxiety. It's leading to, you know, all sorts of kind of mental health issues. And I just wanted to mention a book that has been instrumental in me, for me and, in, in kind of taking a look at, you know, both Facebook and all everything we do online. Um, it was Cal, Cal New, Newport's yep. digital minimalism that I times. read earlier yeah. this spring that I really liked. And it does yeah. help you kind of start to reframe how much we're using our devices. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. It's funny you brought that up because I was I was with my parents at dinner last night with uh, two of their best friends. We came home for Mother's Day today because my sister couldn't be here until today. And, you know, one thing I noticed about my parents' generation is the sense of community that they had. And I, you know, I was with their friends. I was like, how often do you guys see each other? They're like, oh, we see each other in person at least twice a week. And I was trying to think of any of my friends that I actually see twice a week. <laughs> And I was like, this is insane. Like, I was like, wait a minute, you guys see each other and my mom and my mom and her friend talk to each other every day on the, I was like on the phone. I was like, yeah, she's like, yeah. And it was just such a, it was, it was really such a bizarre moment for me because I thought, wow, how is this not a priority in our lives? Like it has become normal to have you, you know, to send a text to a friend and not get a response for three days. You know, and you're like, okay, well. Right. Then like the fact that that to me has become our default sort of behavior in terms of how we deal with other humans and we don't see anything wrong with this, I think is to me, that's a, that's a serious cause for concern. Like, I think we're, we're, you know, in a very quickly going into a downward spiral that can lead us to some very dark places. Oh, absolutely. It, it's amazing. First of all, there's the positive, which is we now actually don't, we're connected to people from around the world and we can maintain those connections throughout years. And that's, that's a phenomenal thing that comes from this. Um, the reality is, is that the depth of those connections have to come from actually experiences together. And so I think yeah. I always look at my parents when we'll, they'll come to a, a party or they'll show up and they've worked the room. They know every single person in that room. They probably have sat down and heard somebody's actual story. They'll be, They'll be recounting to me things that uh, someone told them that I know that I have no idea about because they actually know how to engage, build relationships, build community. And I think that's something that um, I think that's something that we've gotten out of practice on um, yeah. we're sort of out of shape. And we have to start building that muscle back of that in real life engagement, in real life development of friendships. Uh, in real life development of friendships with strangers. And so the idea of building that connection, building that community, and it's something that, you know, it's something that we hold really true to our core and what we're trying to do. Um, it's hard. I kind of hate going and doing networking events and those sort of things because they feel really contrived and it's always on a schedule. But the idea of like connecting with people, saying hello, building those relationships, it really changes it. And we've, We've recently lived, uh, we now 
live in Healdsburg in Sonoma County. And so it's an hour outside of San Francisco. We've, we've basically effectively moved to the country. Um, <laughs> and it is transformative because it doesn't yeah. work in the same way. We have friends in town that we've developed relationships with. Uh, we've got our coffee shop, our grocery store. We have our full community where we are engaging with people. We're talking to people. We've got the postman who knows our name and has a chat when they drop by. Um, and it's kind of really changed our perspective on the fact that you don't need these very light online relationships that actually don't take a lot of effort um, and build them up. It's it's the ones that happen in town. And there was a recent article that talked about sort of the idea that talking to strangers is actually a really good mood lifter. And in a way, it really mm-hmm. is um, in that engagement. And so I think as society, we have to start building those connections. Um, and that's actually a big yeah. piece about what people will often say to us on our business, what sets you apart? What makes you different? And our theory and it sounds really sort of soft, but it is our community. It's the fact that people who are entrepreneurs feel a little lonely and they come and they find a friend and they connect with someone they wouldn't otherwise have connected with. And they make a friend over the water cooler or they're washing their dishes or they're getting a coffee and they're not people they would went to school with or went to college with, Mm -hmm. or were forced to work with because they were in, you know, employees together on the same team. They're different people. They're unique. They're different ages. They're different races, they're different genders, they're different everything. And that diversity and sort of commonality that starts to come and you start to realize that, you know, you're building relationships with people in all walks of life. And I think that's something that is really important for us and our company and what we really want to do. Yeah. Yeah, It's funny because I I had a a friend who saw me about two or three weeks after my sister's wedding. We met up for dinner and he's one of my best friends. We've known each other for a long time. He said, you seem really different. You seem really confident. You seem really happy. And I was trying to kind of piece together what the the sort of common threads were during that time. I quit social media for all of January. So I knew that that had an impact, but I thought, you know, that can't have been the most transformative thing. And I finally realized what it was. I was because we were getting ready for a wedding. And if you guys have been to an Indian wedding, you know, it's like a massive ordeal. Even the wedding itself lasts five days. And I realized <laughs> we were spending a lot of time with family. Uh, we went shopping in India for a month before, you know, all together for three and a half weeks. Uh, And so I I saw, I was like, wait a minute, I know what it is. It's human contact. And so I started recently tracking using the gyroscope app, my mood, and I wanted to see what the correlation was on the days that I had human contact, whether that was, you know, in a CrossFit gym, whether that was sitting at my house playing video games with a friend. And I noticed that my mood was substantially different on those days. And so I, I, you know, I wanted to start doing research around this. And I, I stumbled upon this New York Times article that was titled Human Contact is Now a Luxury Good. And it was amazing because it talked about the kinds of schools that the people who build the technologies that basically disconnect us from other humans put their kids in. And none of those schools allow computers or screens or any of that stuff. And I was like, that's amazing. The very people who build this stuff don't put their kids in situations that expose them to this stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Imagine Philip Morris didn't let their kids smoke cigarettes either. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one thing, you know, I wonder, are you guys parents just out of curiosity? We're new parents. We just had a baby six months ago. Okay. Congratulations. Uh, 
So this is one of the things I wanted to ask you about. And anytime I have parents, I'm curious about this because we have a lot of parents who actually homeschool their children using the content of the show. And uh, one thing I wonder is how you guys think about education, particularly coming from a place like Google, where I know because I, I had an interview at Google once and uh, you know I had I had one of the check boxes, which was a Berkeley degree and all the rest I bombed. Like I couldn't figure out how many you know golf balls fit in a 747. And I realized now if somebody asked me that question, I'd be like, can you explain to me one situation in which I'm going to have to put multiple golf balls in a 747, unless Richard Branson and I are going to do ecstasy somewhere. I can't see how that's <laughs> going to be relevant. Uh, and, see, and, you know, because I realized, the question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm like, okay, unless you, Richard Branson and I are going to go do a bunch of X, I can't imagine one situation in which we'll need to fill an entire 747 with golf balls. Uh, but I remember, <laughs> you know, those kinds of questions were what eliminated me from most of these places. And then I remember this one particular story, which I've referenced in numerous articles that I've written. It was a story about Kevin Systrom and how Google at one time had this policy where if you wanted to be an associate product manager, you absolutely had to have a computer science degree. There was no getting around it. And as a result, Kevin Systrom left. You know, lucky for him, that all worked out, but that was a billion dollar mistake on their part. And so I wonder how you guys think about um, things like education, things like pedigree um, and the role that they play uh, in the world that we're, we're going into, not just as entrepreneurs, but as parents as well. If we just had this debate uh, this weekend, actually, with other new parents, too. Um, do you want to? Yeah. Take I, a crack? <laughs> I, I think it's very interesting because because we're actually just sort of embarking on. First of all, we're definitely just in time people and just in time parents, so we're not the type of people who have had the kindergarten and you know nursery you know applications in progress. We're, we're just sort of beginning to think about this now. But I, as we think about the path for our daughter Harper, and as it relates to you know the next generation of, 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 of people growing up. I don't know. I, I question the value of pedigree, you know, relative to experience. We were sort of having the debate around private school, you know, public school versus private school. And, and I know it's hard to, you know, be experimental with the, you know, with your kids, with, with your kids own education. Um, but to a certain extent, um, and we think about this actually in our own hiring processes, uh, when we see backgrounds that are not backgrounds of privilege, and you know, it wasn't somebody who went to all of the private schools and got to have a gap year program, you know, that was you know a, a year away from school, but obviously very expensive, and their parents supported on it. And you know, more like backgrounds where they you know worked summer jobs or you know had an experience that that you know maybe they went to public school, but they really stood out in what they were doing at public school. Were, we're certainly drawn to that. And I think for me, at least, I think that's, that's a little more of what my background is, but I, I also was throwing out the, the, you know, the, the, the importance of diversity in your own background. So I think there's a big difference between being on a track where you go through you know, elementary school and junior high and high school, and you're just in a single track versus, you know, moving around. My background was, was moving continents, you know, from Africa to the Midwest to Virginia. And uh, I went to three high schools in four different years. And I, I think that that, you know, that resilience that that develops has been really important to my own upbringing. So, 
Um, I, that, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, the, yeah, the idea of even homeschooling your kids and, and listening to this, you know, podcast, one of the things we're thinking about is, can we travel all over the place and have Harper come with us and have some sort of alternative education program where she's able to do that? I don't know. What do you think, Ann? <laughs> I think both of us would be terrible at homeschooling our child. <laughs> so that's, that's off the table. Um, <laughs> but I'd be very open to, I think we've been talking about that is this idea of, you, you talk about the fact that you love the idea of the public school system, and yet at the same time, you come from a life where you had you had the most, in a lot of ways, elitist experience of experience, right? Like people would pay money to be able to give their kids the kind of experience you had growing up. Yeah. Um, and so that's a really privileged, wonderful experience to have had. I think I come from a more traditional, I went to public school, I went to good schools, I come from the perspective of, and I think this is part of it, is, is that my mother spent, my mother ingrained in us that she would do everything right up to, if she had to mortgage that house to give us the best possible chance to be successful. Um, and she was like, I will put it all on the line for education. I will put it all on the line to make sure that I give my three girls their best chance of being successful because I didn't have access to that level of opportunity. And I think it's an interesting thing is, is that we realize that Harper is going to get to grow up in this very rarefied air. We live on, we live in Sonoma County in the most, you know, beautiful place in California. We come from Silicon Valley. We have got great uh, experiences. We're traveling all the time. We're taking her with us. We can kind of uh, write the rules of what the, what our lifestyle looks like. We work really hard. And so she'll understand that like, we have to work for what we have and we work for our money. We're not yet at the fucking money stage, but she gets, she will get a very unique experience to a lot of kids. Um, and that's a, that's a pretty special thing to have. Mm. And I think it's hard. And so one, one of the debates that we're having is, is that, you know, do you put yourselves in and support the public school system because it's important to actually be an active, smart, engaged parent and make sure that our public school system gets better. And I think that tends to fit with our ethos and our sort of perspective. Um, and then at the same time, do you take a risk on your kid and, and maybe not give him everything you possibly could offer to her or him? And I think parents are going to continue to debate. I think the greater good is something that matters. And I think as a parent, you just take on more responsibility to give your kid uh, the things that they need to be successful, um, whether that's experiences or whether that's you doing extra work. Um, but I think, I think if you are, you have to take up on a bigger burden for it for sure. And it's an ongoing debate. We don't know where we're going to land, but if there's a really good homeschooling, uh, solution where somebody else is homeschooling my kid and was willing to travel the world with us, we're down. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, how do you think this plays out in terms of, of kind of, you know, hiring decisions? Because I remember, and I remember when I got through the Google book, I thought, oh, wow. So, you know, the me, the version of me that I am now would have a hell of a lot better chance of getting in Google today than I would have then, because back then I didn't have the SAT scores. I didn't have the GPA. Um, I didn't meet most of the checkboxes. And it seems like they realized they missed out on a lot because of that. Yeah, I think to be fair, I, and I think it's a good, it's a good point. I think Google has shifted its, um, sort of hiring practices on that time, you know, the reality is, is that decisions are often 
it's, it's easy to look back and be like, was that a good decision or a bad decision? And I don't know how Google would say which way it went. I think at the time when it was, where there were a lot of tech boxes and I can tell you, I went through 11 interviews and my, uh, let's put it this way, my GPA, um, I was, I happened to be lucky that one of the executives knew what school I went to because I definitely was, was close or barely able to make it through that part of the process. But at the time it was, we would mm-hmm. rather lose out on making a, on a good person than we would make a bad hire. Um, and that was the philosophy in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. And what it ended up doing was, and I can remember very clearly sitting in hiring practice meetings and, and hiring committee meetings. And actually Jonathan Rosenberg at the time, who was one of the really senior guys who shaped this whole approach, he would definitely give, um, he would be more accepting of people with lower GPAs or not the best schools if they had done some of the things that Chris and I talked about, which was like they had to put themselves through school or they had a job or they didn't come from a really wealthy family. He considered those elements um, to be actually really a strong indicator of strong performers. And so there was a little bit of, you know, perceived if, if you had everything going for you, we had a higher bar, but I, I think now looking at it, um, the reality is, is that you've got to be able to identify those things that give you someone who will be a resilient employee, who will be a go-getter, who's willing to do that. And at the end of the day, hmm. that really has to fit for your company, right? So maybe Google at the time needed people to be all like right. that. I don't know that every company needs that. Um, and each company has to, has to decide for themselves what's the right mm-hmm. thing. I can tell you for us, we are scrappy. So we look for people who have hustle and scrappiness. Um, those don't necessarily equate to, I was president of mm-hmm. the volleyball team and, oh, sorry, I was coach, I was the head of the volleyball team and president of the student council. Um, they look more like people who, you know, had to have a summer right. job or had to come up with some, alternative program that they put forth. And so that it's really about what the company looks for. And then as I think about skills going forward, and this is something that we've Mm -hmm. been talking about when it comes to um, skill development in some of these markets where, you know, they're thinking about what is job training look like in this new, in this new world order with technology. And, you know, there's a million code coding programs out there, but actually our view is the way through is entrepreneurship. People need to, it's in 20 years, I I think a CS degree is going to be less important than it was 20 years ago. Um, And I remember painfully that product management requirement at Google um, as I was first interviewing there. And what I would say is, is that from now, we need to be developing stronger skills in our children um, and skills that represent whether it's EQ based skills mm-hmm. or their interests or things that they're going to be strong in that allow them to build services or build companies or lead teams and think about some of those skills, because those are the ones that aren't going to be, um, go into machine learning. Right. And at the end of the day, I think just being a coder is not the way to be successful. If you're sitting in Louisville, Kentucky, and you go to a code Academy and you're a hundred on the coding list, there's 99 ahead of you. Um, and it's unlikely that that's going to lead to a great, successful job. We need to teach people 
um, to find jobs that they're going to be really good at, that they can excel at, and they can build agency around. And I don't think that's always going to be the CS degree jobs. I think uh, these coding schools are selling a message sometimes to folks that maybe doesn't yield the best results at the end of the day, much like Bitcoin. Yeah, Yeah. I think that again, one thing I've noticed over the last year or so is that you know I look at how much easier it is to do so many of the things that even you know building this this you know podcast were like now it's a thousand times easier. The tools are getting faster and easier to use. And as I'm watching this, like what's becoming very clear to me is that the value of technical proficiency is slowly declining, and the value of imagination creativity is rapidly increasing. Exactly because it's no longer you know how do I use this thing? It's what can I conceive making with this thing. Uh, you know, and I've seen it just play out in virtually every AI based tool. I'm like, this is insane. Like so many of the things that we used to struggle with are no longer like your limitation will be your imagination. That's it. That's right. And it's this tech enablement that's actually happening is making way more possible for anyone to build a company anywhere. And at the end of the day, that's mm-hmm. what's so exciting. And I think we get really caught up in you know, who's going to be building the next Uber or Google or Facebook. And the reality is, is that people can build great companies everywhere and they all don't have to, who wants to run a billion, multi-billion dollar company? Do you know what a pain in the ass that would be? Like all of a sudden technology is making it possible for you to build really great businesses that are great for your family, that are great for, uh, the economy, that are great for your customers, build great businesses um, that's more interesting and technology makes that easier than ever. And that is truly going to be the agency that allows anyone anywhere, um, to be able to rise up and pull themselves into another echelon where they actually control their destiny, where they're not worried about layoffs in their community yeah. or their town. Now technology makes it possible to do that and be, do that anyway. Mm-hmm. So, and this is a question for you. I wonder, as a woman, what do you think that men are unaware of in terms of uh, the challenges that women deal with in working environments like Google, or for that matter, any working environments, particularly in the wake of a lot of the things that we've seen in the last few years? Yeah, I, you know what I think? I'll tell you what makes me the most frustrated. And um, I haven't talked about this much recently, but maybe it was having a baby. I got to chill out for a little while. I think one of the things that I see with men is they really want to solve the problem. Um, And I think there's nothing more frustrating than someone wanting to solve a problem that for you that they don't have. Um, And so the feedback that I would say is, is that, you know, that's, that's the part you don't have to necessarily fully understand what the problem is. Um, You just don't have to try and solve it. We're pretty good at solving problems as women. I mean, honestly, have you met a woman that doesn't know how to solve a problem? And have you met a woman that's not wanting to solve it herself? And I think a lot of times I hear from men, like we, I remember we were at a conference recently, maybe about a year ago, and I had about three different men come up and say, you know, this is a founders conference and we don't get enough women here. And I'm going to sponsor next year that we each bring one female founder. And I was like, so that's, that's how you're going to solve the problem. You know what? Maybe we should actually open it up to women who weren't necessarily founders to come to this leadership conference because there's a whole host of women 
who didn't have the option in the last 20 years to be founders because they weren't getting funded, but they actually build companies and are, you know, the reason why companies are scaling and they are the second person behind the founder of the company. And they're probably the reason why it's still on the rails. So maybe we should include them into this elitist club that we're in. And they're like, well, no, this is for founders. And I was like, that's amazing. So let's get 25-year-old e-commerce founders or, you know, women who are able to do it now, but totally forget about the 40-year-old ladies who are out there who are like, I have been building companies for the last 20 years. And could I get invited to that founder event one time? And I think like it was a very interesting perspective because they were like, no, we wouldn't want to change the rules, but we want to solve this women in tech problem. And I'm like, maybe you shouldn't be the one trying to solve the women in tech problem. They kind of look like, look at me like my hair's on fire and I'm kind of crazy. Um, But at the end of the day, I think what women in tech and women in leadership is get out of the way uh, of me trying to fix it. I will fix it. But what I really need is you to say, I see it, I see you, and I understand that this is happening. And I think that's actually the biggest frustration for me. I won't speak for other women, but I think that's the biggest frustration for me is when you have, uh, when you're confronted with someone saying, how are we going to fix this problem? Or I don't even know what this problem is. How do we fix it? When all we really want is for our counterparts to be like, that kind of sucked for you. I can see that that actually exists. I can see that why that would be frustrating. And I think a lot of men and women have a tendency to, you know, men want to solve that problem. And I say, don't solve the problem. Just recognize it, understand it and tell me that you'll help me and you'll back up any of the ideas I might have as crazy as they might be to solve it ourselves. So I know we've been kind of dancing around the edges of it, and I've only let you refer to it slightly, you know, uh, because I've you know, riddled you with so many questions that have nothing to do with it. But uh, tell us a bit about Launchpad. I know, you know, probably our listeners want to hear about it, and I want to give you guys a chance to plug what you guys are up to. Sure. This was sometimes it's more fun to just talk away. Um, <laughs> Launchpad is about solving the women tech problem. Um, no, Launchpad is a network of co-working spaces. Uh, and really, it is a community-driven network where we focus on entrepreneurship in what we call momentum markets. So they're great lifestyle cities where you can still buy a house um, with cultural, uh, rich cultural aspects to them and places that population wants to move back to um, and build their family, build their companies, build their careers. And Launchpad um, started in New Orleans 10 years ago. Uh, as just a single co-working space and with the idea of activating the entrepreneurial community there. It's had phenomenal results with over 5,000 jobs created, $160 million in venture capital being raised, uh, and over 600,000 square feet of commercial real estate being leased by companies coming out of New Orleans. About two years ago, Chris and I started to take the band on the road and decided to expand to our network. We now have four locations, Memphis, Nashville, Newark, and of course, New Orleans. We're hoping to be in 20 locations in the next two years. Um, It's a big uh, initiative, but our view is is that we want to build a large national network of co-working spaces that are really focused on their community, both inside the Launchpad locations, but also outward 
uh, in terms of developing relationships with each of the cities and markets that we're in. Um, and we're also going to raise a venture capital fund so that we can invest in those companies and start to level the playing field of venture capital across the country outside of the Valley in New York and take some of the principles that we have here and make sure that we start to increase the inflow of capital into companies in these cities, because that's really going to help us build great companies across the U.S. Wow. So um, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish uh, all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I'll jump in. The um, uh, I think this concept of agency, um, which is what we drive at, uh, we think entrepreneurship is a, a tool for creating agency in your own life. Uh, and what I mean by that is not letting life happen to you, sitting back and letting it happen to you, or feeling like you have to live life on some terms of climbing the ladder of going to school, grad school, great job, you know, you being able to really do what you want and create a life, create a career, create a business that enables you to truly do what you want is what makes somebody unmistakable to me. And as someone who, um, doesn't get it doesn't maybe stand out in terms of her looks i can say that having chris schultz's curly locks certainly make you unmistakable in a crowd and very <laughs> memorable which is um something that we all should achieve amazing well i can't thank you enough for uh taking the time to join us and sharing your story and your insights with listeners this has been really cool and eye-opening and thought-provoking uh, where can people find out more about both of you and everything that you're up to uh, we can, you can learn more about Launchpad at lp.co and at Launchpad on Twitter. Um, on Twitter, I am at C Schultz, C-S-E-H-U-L-T-Z. And on Instagram, I'm at AED311, which you can see cute photos of Harper at. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.